What business is it of other people? Nobody's paying my bills, I'm paying my bills. Nobody's taking care of me, I'm taking care of myself. That's what we call adulthood. And, and as long as I'm behaving like an adult, the only thing I could say is shut the fuck up. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hello, Narcotica listeners. I'm one of the show's co-hosts, Zach Siegel, and I'm here to remind you that we do have a Patreon, which, if you dig us, you could subscribe and donate to. But if you can't, don't worry. This show will always be free because we believe that information is meant for all, not just for those with means. So find us at patreon.com forward slash narcotica. We're also on Twitter at Narcocast, and you can find our show on all of the major platforms. And if you have the time, please like and subscribe to us and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends about the show. It really helps us out. Thank you. Dr. Carl Hart has long been known as America's preeminent drug scientist. If you listen to our show regularly, you've probably heard of him. He appeared briefly way back on episode 6, talking about crack cocaine. For the uninitiated, Dr. Hart is a neuroscientist at Columbia University, and he's published well over 100 peer-reviewed scientific papers. He has over 3,000 citations, which is a big deal in science. If your work isn't good, no one cites it. Dr. Hart's research produces vital knowledge and understanding of how drugs work not only in the brain, but how they work in people's lives and society at large. But lately, Dr. Hart has taken his work outside the lab. He's a man on a mission, really. And that mission is to convince Americans that drugs are not what they think they are. And the tip of the spear is his new book, Drug Use for Grown-Ups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. I could gush over Dr. Hart for hours, He's one of my intellectual and scientific heroes. His research has informed not just my writing and journalism, but also my own drug-using experiences. So, I'll shut up and get to it. Dr. Carl Hart, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And also in the house today are Narcotica co-hosts Troy Farah in California and Chris Moraff in Philly. What's up, guys? Hey, how's it going? What's going on? All right. So we're all really excited for this conversation, and we're going to cover a lot of ground. So I figured we just dive into it. So in the book, you really come out swinging. Right off the bat, you announce first sentence that you are a, quote, unapologetic drug user. Then you say that it has taken you a full two decades to come out of the closet, so to speak and announce to the world that not only do you use drugs, but that you're also better off for it. You're a better person, more empathetic, and more understanding of others. Though you also call yourself a coward for hiding in the proverbial closet for all these years. 
So already, you know, the first page, first paragraph, really, just so many layers and depth and a lot to digest. Was it a hard decision to write that first sentence of your book? You're a scientist, a researcher, you study drugs, and you come out and say that you use them and that you like them. Talk about taking that leap. It wasn't a hard leap to um, write the sentence or to write this about this. The hardest thing to write about that was the fact that admitting that you have been a coward, um, because none of us really think of ourselves as cowards. Um, but when somebody like me, thinking about this issue and thinking about how I have behaved in the past, uh, the, I can only really describe it in the simplest terms as being a coward. Um, and so that, that was hard, facing yourself. That's the hardest thing. But in terms of the public and what the public might say about my drug use or those sorts of things, man, I, I could care less what the public thinks. Um, uh, I'm a bigger critic than the public would ever be. Uh, and um, beyond my, my immediate family, my children, my wife, I, I really don't care what people think. As long as I am not hurting other people, not causing other people harm, um, I, I don't care what they think. Um, um, and that's how I hope, I wish other people would live, live their lives in that uh, uh, as long as they're not bothering other people, that they're not preventing other people from enjoying their rights, uh, what business is it of other people? Uh, nobody's paying my bills, I'm paying my bills. Nobody's taking care of me, I'm taking care of myself. Um, that, that's what we call adulthood. And, and as long as I'm behaving like an adult, the only thing I could say is shut the fuck up. Uh, I'd like to just push back a little bit on that, on the cowardice part. Um, obviously, there's a certain privilege that comes from academia that, that doesn't, um, you know, sort of trickle down to every uh, person in society. And there are some repercussions that would come from openly admitting drug use for some people. They may lose their job. They could be put on the radar of DHS if they have children. I wonder if um, there's a stratus where, you know, you can sort of accept that, that maybe at times um, because of our uh, the rhetoric that comes out of Washington and, and the local municipalities, you know, there is a reason, a good reason to keep drug use hidden. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, pushback, if you will. Um, yeah, I, I think, for example, you mentioned like women who are um, identified as drug users might have their children taken away. Uh, but let's just be clear. The only women who are having their children taken away if they test positive for drugs are poor women and usually minority women um, in, in general. And let's think about the job situation. Um, there is some risk. And um, uh, there is risk to me. People think like there is no risk. I mean, I have... Uh, people are talking about me in the, in the academy about what will, will happen. The fact is, whenever there is an injustice and then you want to correct the injustice, there is risk in trying to correct that injustice. When those people like MLK, Rosa Parks, all of those folks put their bodies on the line, put their families, they, they did all this risk because of the injustice that occurred. And so, yeah, it's not without risk. And so if people are not making the choice because of these risks, that's fine. That's your choice. 
But don't get it twisted. Our heroes did the same thing. They put themselves on the line. So if you want to be like your heroes or if these people are your heroes, what do you think they did? Uh, and so when I had to face this, when I had to think about all these sorts of things, I just said, let the chips fall where they may. And people think of me as being privileged. That's, I am at some level in that I have a salary in that I have had an opportunity to get an education. But I am still a black man in the United States. I am still someone who people would like to shut the hell up. Uh, I'm still that person that people are coming at me every day. I get all of these sort of letters, emails, all kinds of stuff uh, that I don't necessarily, I didn't have to have. I could have been, I could have enjoyed my nice privileged position as a professor at Columbia who didn't uh, make any waves. Um, there, My life is stressful. I mean, I don't get much sleep because I have to prepare, because I read all these all this nonsense that people are uh, gear, gearing towards me or aiming at me. And um, I have to make sure I check uh, my surroundings, make sure that uh, people are not messing with my children as a result of this position. Um, but that pales in terms of me looking in the mirror and seeing that I know that people are being persecuted. People are being vilified for doing exactly what I do. And I shut up. What kind of man am I? That's what I had to face. Yeah. Yeah. Taking that leap and doing what you do can be, it can feel like a lonely place. It can feel stressful. And that's, you know, that's also where drugs come in, right? We, we use drugs for all these reasons that because being human is sometimes hard. <laughs> just, just, that's just the fact. You're absolutely right, Zach. See, the thing is too, uh, but I want people to understand, like, uh, uh, people in our society are comfortable keeping drug use in that sort of domain where you use them in this sort of medicinal way to deal to like maybe deal with some anxiety or some stress. Uh, that's certainly a, uh, one of the ways, but I also use drugs to have a good time to connect with my wife. And so I don't want to just keep it in that medicinal sort of realm because then we allow the other cops to have control. Those cops are called physicians. And so um, I don't want a cop to be telling me when I can drink alcohol, but that's what some people would like to do with MDMA and these sorts of things. That's silly to me. Since we're sort of on the topic of parenthood, I, I don't know if you remember, Dr. Hart, but we met at the National Perinatal Conference in 2018, and I interviewed you on the spot for this podcast, uh, which listeners can go back and find in episode six. And I just want to say it was so generous of you to talk to me because I know you were extremely tired and you just wanted to get back to your hotel room. It was just 10 minutes, but it really meant a lot to me. And I remember back then you were telling people and, and me as well, like to come out of the closet about the drug use. Uh, and I've done my best to do that. I'm not shy about my drug use if someone asks, but I also don't advertise it that much. Um, so I think I could be doing a better job about that. You know, I, I think I need to personally find the balance. I, I don't want to overshare or post on Twitter every time I do a line of ketamine or take Adderall that isn't prescribed to me. I am a little paranoid. I am a little bit of a coward. I think I have to deal with that. But uh, uh, anyway, at this conference, which was ostensibly about uh, drug use and pregnancy, you spoke at length about cannabis and the effect it can have on a fetus. 
Um, you had a study that came out last May on this topic, which is, I feel, really groundbreaking. Uh, the title of it was Totality of the Evidence Suggests Prenatal Cannabis Exposure Does Not Lead to Cognitive Impairments, a Systematic and Critical Review. For people that aren't really familiar with the scientific method, systematic and critical review is like the top part of science. Uh, this is a really thorough, you're looking at all the evidence. Uh, and I tried to find a publication that was interested in this. No editors I spoke to would touch this topic, which, you know, that may not be all that surprising to you. Uh, it's still so controversial to smoke weed or anything, take any drug really while pregnant. Uh, can you summarize this research for listeners? I think this would be a good jumping off point to talk about some drug myths and that kind of thing. Yeah, just to go back a little bit in terms of how you choose to come out, I think that that's a good point in that uh, it's gra- it can be gradual for people. It can look a certain way for other people. Um, that's fine. You know your situation better than I or anyone else. Uh, and so I think that's a smart thing to do. And I think it's also smart not to overshare. You're not an adolescent. You don't run out and tell people every time you have sex. Why would you do that with drugs? So I absolutely agree with you there. Uh, moving back to the study with cannabis, it's an interesting thing. You know, one of the things that I discovered while teaching a graduate seminar on this topic, I discovered that what people say about their data in this field oftentimes didn't match with the data. And so that initially got me interested in writing this paper or, or reviewing the literature. Um, and what you see is just what we concluded. The evidence does not support the notion that prenatal cannabis has deleterious effects or cause deleterious effects on subsequent cognitive functioning in offspring. That's what we, that's what we uh, found. And that's what the literature says. That's what the overwhelming amount of evidence in the literature says. Now, the question is, why wouldn't publications be interested? Why, why are people are afraid of this? It's simple. It's what we do in the country when it comes to drugs. It's better in our collective psyche to err on the side of caution um, rather than to state uh, what we found in this case, because what we found in this case some people would say, well, this might be taken as encouragement um, by some mother or uh, expecting mother to use marijuana. Uh, it's in this, it, it's the, I think the, the, the motivation lies in the need or the, the want to protect mothers uh, and from themselves. And that's where we get in trouble. Um, we have to allow adults to live like adults. Uh, and we have to uh, put the evidence in the public domain as the evidence is, and the chips fall where they may. That means you have to trust the people to be adults. And adults want that. Adults don't want people to tell them what to do. Um, and so uh, science, uh, the scientific literature, is replete with this sort of thing where um, we're cautious, uh, we, uh, uh, we err on the side of caution, as if there are no consequences to that. There are tremendous consequences, negative consequences to that. The, the negative consequences is that you uh, have in the public's mind that drugs 
are inevitably or they inevitably produce negative effects. Uh, and, and that then leads us to regulate these drugs as if uh, any use uh, is so harmful and so dangerous. Uh, and that uh, contributes to our war on drugs. It provides uh, a motivation for the war on drugs. Uh, so like I said in the intro, clearly you're on a mission to persuade, to get people onto your side, to shake them out of their dogmatic slumber and start thinking differently and critically about drugs. And that's that's hard to do because sadly, as we all know, reality and facts, as you just outlined, are not always enough. Drugs are ideological, they're political, and our politics currently are kind of batshit. So walk us through how you decided to kind of structure this book and your arguments in it. Because you do ground everything in science, of course, while also trying to be persuasive and appeal to people's emotions and beliefs. So, so how'd you walk that line? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so when I write a book, I always think about it. I try and organize the chapters where, where I want to go. In this book, I, um, I, the first four chapters is like basic education. And so the first chapter is the war on us, the war on drugs. And the second chapter is get out of the closet. And then it's it, that uh, the war on drugs, we all know that quite well. Uh, to get out of the, the closet chapter, we know that we know that less well. And that's where I talk about um, the guarantees of an American citizen, life, liberty, and in pursuit of happiness and this promise that we all uh, seem to have forgotten that we are guaranteed this by birthright and no one can take it away from you as long as you're not preventing other people uh, from enjoying these rights. And and we at, we have sacrificed that right when it comes to drugs. And so I'm asking people, why did we do that? How did this happen? And then I'm talking about the responsibility that goes along uh, with uh, liberty. Uh, so you don't just have liberty, but you have responsibilities. Uh, and then the third chapter deals with harm reduction. And in that chapter, uh, I'm just trying to help people to understand um, that uh, harm reduction is not necessarily a good thing that uh, the term uh, harm reduction it marries or it weds uh, harm with drugs and over and over these terms are paired together and that kind of affects the way we behave we think we uh, what we what we imagine when we see someone who is receiving harm reduction harm reduction is just simply education intervention normal sort of common sense. I brushed my teeth this morning. That's harm reduction. But we don't call it harm reduction only when it's related to drugs. So I'm asking people to think about that. I'm asking people to think about, you know, you're supporting safe facility or, or supervised in, injection facilities. And it's like, why are you doing that? Why don't you make sure people have homes? Because if you have a, if I know personally, if I wanted to get high, I don't want to do it in publicly in public. And if I had a home, my own home, yeah, I'm cool. I don't want to be getting high around strangers. Um, who wants to do that? Nobody. But they don't. People who go there don't have a home. So we, in our sort of zeal to provide harm reduction. We're forgetting about what the real issues are. People are homeless. People don't have health care. People don't have these things. Focus your attention on that. 
I also talk about how the opioid crisis is overblown because of the how we account this, how we account for uh, overdoses and the uh, the people who lack the qualifications are doing death investigation that sort of thing I, i'm showing folks that and then the fourth chapter i take I, I take the reader through the brain and show them how they've been manipulated with these brain imaging sort of um pictures these pretty pictures i carefully walk them through that and then from five to ten i just take classes of drugs amphetamines cannabis new psychoactive substances cocaine opioids so i just go through these substances including psychedelics and i talk about what the issues are but telling in all of these all of these chapters using me my personal life Today, not in the past, but today, what I'm going through, my travels around the world, getting high with government officials, with business captains of industry, if you will, with famous people, and all of these people in the closet. And then you have all of these people I'm hanging out with too, who are suffering because of them being identified as drug users. And while we are enjoying some privileged lifestyle, Right next door, these people are catching hell for the same thing. So I, I'm taking the reader on a tour around the world and showing how we Americans have infected some countries with our awful drug policy, our, our, our awful drug practice, uh, drug law enforcement practice. Uh, and then also some countries, they got it right. They ignore what we're doing in America and they care more about their citizens. So that's the book. Uh, uh, I tried to make it an interesting journey around the world uh, and me being the common thread that um, um, just how I'm treated in some places versus other places. And in each chapter, of course, uh, I use the, the substance that I'm talking about. And my use of the substance is, um, of course, in a way that enhances the activity in which I'm engaged. And this is a very adult, grown-up thing, and I'm trying to get the reader to see that all the nonsense that they've been taught is just inconsistent with the experience of most people around the world. I'd just like to point out the, the, the language, you know, we talked about the language of harm reduction, and I've always bristled at the, at the word recovery. Um, you know, I'm in recovery. It's as if you're recovering from something. Um, and that's been so, you know, deeply intertwined with the notion of uh, addiction, drug use, problematic drug use, and even non-problematic drug use. Also, this idea of the addictive personality where, you know, if you had a problem with a certain substance that you used it too much or it made your life unmanageable, that any mood-altering substance would have the same effect on you. Um, and indeed, you know, legal substances, alcohol and tobacco, are more dangerous by, you know, manifolds, you know, exponentially more dangerous than, than, uh, than heroin, which has almost zero toxicity on, on the organs. Um, but I, I wonder, um, I guess, you know, just wanted to comment on, on the way we do talk about drugs. And, and for 50 years, we've been indoctrinated with an image of drug use and drug users as the lowest common denominator. And I wonder how we, like, sort of re-educate the public on that. Um, functional drug use just doesn't make for good headlines. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, uh, you talked about heroin. You're comparing heroin to something like alcohol. 
I do that in the book and I make fun of myself because um, I, I gave a lecture once uh, several years ago in Switzerland and I said some stupid shit about heroin. And um, and in Switzerland, as you know, uh, there are people who uh, are maintained on heroin. They get heroin twice a day as part of their treatment. And many of those people had come to this lecture and I was talking about methamphetamine, but I managed to say something stupid about heroin. And, you know, they, the Swiss, they're polite and they, uh, uh, politely ask questions of me that led me down the path to see that I was ignorant on that topic in a very gentle way. But I knew like what had happened. I had made, uh, an inappropriate, ignorant comment, as you point out, uh, uh about heroin. And, um, of course, hero- uh, alcohol can be a lot more toxic in many cases than heroin. And, um, and they let me know that in no uncertain terms, but very gently. Um, and I, I, I make fun of myself for being, um, so ignorant. So yeah, uh, that's a great point. And your, your point about uh, the recovery and addictive personality, all of that language, you're absolutely right. I didn't uh, address that addictive personality uh, sort of thing, but you're absolutely right. There is a lot of space for us to make corrections and, um, and and that's what what has to be done. Just exactly what you're pointing out, because if we don't do that, um, then we're we're accepting the nonsense. And, you know, and, and so uh, I hope you continue to say and, and, and write about that and do something about that language, because you're absolutely right. It makes no sense. But we do it. I really feel like there needs to be uh, a part of journalism education on drugs, because a lot of journalists and a lot of editors and a lot of publishers, they just don't ever really have a good drug education. And so when they come to stories like this, you know, about drugs, they don't often handle them very well because they're, they're just regurgitating what they learned in dare or something equivalent to that. Um, in 2012, I read this book called saying yes by uh, Jacob Solom. Um, and this was the first book that I encountered scientific evidence that all drugs should be legalized and regulated before I read that, I was like, you know, legalized weed, legalized psychedelics, sure. But I was really on the fence about meth, cocaine, and heroin. Um, a lot of the science in that book was very old, um, but it was it prevented a very clear, strong argument that we got to fucking stop using the drug war. Um, it's not scientific at all. Um, and there are a lot of things I disagree with Solom about. Um, he's a editor at Reason. It's a libertarian rag that makes some really bad faith economic arguments, in my opinion. But hey, they're progressive on drugs, at least. Um, and libertarians love corporations and they hate regulation. So they seem to want massive markets like we see with cannabis in some states with little to no oversight. And I'm getting to my point here, but there's this increasingly vocal part of the conversation on drug reform that says we want to end the war on drugs, but we just want to decriminalize. No more criminal penalties, but you also can't open a weed shop or a heroin apothecary or whatever. So what's your take? Is it better to decriminalize or fully legalize? But unlike libertarians, I'm assuming you're in favor of some regulation. Yeah, you, you know, um, thank you for helping me to understand the libertarian position because I, I really don't know it, but I don't learn the weeds of libertarian or uh, democratic or republican. I don't, I, I think it's just silly to like put yourself in these camps like you're on a football team. You know, it's, it's like what works and how we get there. You borrow a little bit from here, borrow a little bit from there. So, I am a supporter of 
regulating the market in a manner,、uh, in a similar manner in which we do alcohol. We live in a capitalistic society, and so people are going to make money, and some companies will be more dominant than others. I think we should prevent monopolies, like we always have tried to do、uh, under most、uh, administrations. Uh, but I think I am a supporter of legal regulation because of this issue related to quality control. I want to make sure that people have quality substance, no matter what they have. And I also uh, uh, am concerned that、um, we have、uh, the appropriate unit dose、um, available for sale. So、uh, we can put enough alcohol in a bottle of beer to kill you, but we don't.、Um, and so we want to want to make sure that we have you know the right amount of heroin in a unit dose, such that people have a good time. But it、uh, there's a decreased likelihood that they will kill themselves with that. Unit dose, and so、um, so I'm a proponent of uh, uh, legal regulation,、um, and people are going to make money. That's what happens in a capitalistic society.、Uh, one of the things that's interesting、uh, about the cannabis legal cannabis market is that we now have 15 states. And they have slight different sort of、uh, variations on how they're doing it. And、um, places like Illinois, they are trying to、uh, redress past、uh, drug war sort of harms.、Um, and I, I, I like what they're doing.、Uh, and then I hope other states will improve upon what、uh, Illinois does. Illinois may not. Um, achieve all of the goals, but that's okay. It's an, that's one experiment. Another state can do another experiment. So I think we can learn from what's happening with the cannabis market,、uh, and then we can apply it to other drugs as we legalize those other drugs. And so,、uh, so cannabis is really important here. I'm, I'm, I'm actually liking what I'm seeing. So on the point about Illinois, so I'm in Chicago. I grew up right by Evanston, and so Evanston has a reparations program that they're implementing. And so black residents who suffered housing discrimination in Evanston between like 1919 and 1970 or something, and they'll be eligible for for money through this new pool of reparations money that's funded through the new legal cannabis market. So like I don't know where else that's happening, but Evanston is some is they're trying to do something, right? As opposed to just unleashing the market and you need so much capital to buy in and it's only all the money's funneling to the top and and all that. So I I totally agree. You're, you're right that with With legalization and with markets, there is a duty to redress and repair past harms, and also create them in the most equitable, democratic, egalitarian way that we can. That also has consumer protections and safety, and that goes to sort of my next question about just how much education about drugs is is hidden from us, like people. We don't talk about set and setting in classrooms. We don't talk about dosing.、Uh, we're not born with knowledge of how to use these drugs, and sadly, sometimes we learn the hard way. Like take alcohol. We we have an experience where, you know, we're excited to drink and we go a little overboard. We get sick, dizzy, vomit, 
we get hung over and we go, we wake up, we're like, oh, you know, I don't want to do that again. That was not fun. And that's how you learn to dose. That's how you learn to, okay, I'm going to drink less so I can enjoy it. And that is the kind of education that we have right now with a lot of drugs. And sadly, because of the toxicity and impurities and potency of the illicit supply, people use and they learn the hard way by dying. And that's totally a travesty. And it's shocking that this is happening to tens of thousands of people. And so in, in, in building a new regulated market, what does your ideal education campaign look like to follow it or to accompany it? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, wow. We will, we would have to do a radical about face uh, when it comes to drug education because we have lied to the population for so long such that we'd say these things are so dangerous any use you can get in trouble that's just not, that's not true uh, um, the likelihood of you getting in trouble can be minimized based on those things like you said set and setting dose all of these things so that's what um, the education will have to look like I think that we would have to have I think we should even start this now because we are doing marijuana legalization. We should have massive amounts of public service announcements uh, about set and setting, whether it's marijuana, whether it's alcohol, whether it's MDMA. We should have massive, uh, funny, uh, engaging clips uh, about set and setting. Um, about dose, about route of administration. Just build it into the culture. And the filmmakers will put it in their movies, of course. They always do. It will start to be, it'll be in, uh, be written in TV shows. Uh, you guys might remember in the 80s and the 90s, uh, really in the 90s, we were paying networks to put anti-drug messages in their uh, programming. We should be doing this with proper drug education, not uh, uh, propaganda. That would go a long way in helping people to understand that drug effects are predictable uh, as long as you know a few of the basics. Um, and it's simple. It's so simple. We could all right now, we could all come up with some skits um, that would work and would be funny, engaging uh, and I, I'm, I'm reminded. I'm reminded of a powerful commercial that I just watched last night. It's it's it was like a public service announcement, but it was paid for by an organization. Uh, it's called the Freedom from Religion Foundation. I don't know if you all know that. Ron Reagan, the son of Ronald Reagan, is a spokesperson, and he basically is uh, uh, saying that we have got to get religion out of our government, out of our, uh, our public life. like uh, And um, at the end, he says, uh, he, he looks in the camera and he says, Ron Reagan, a lifelong atheist who is not afraid to burn in hell. And that was on a TV commercial that they played for a spot. And it was like, that hit. That's what the country was uh, built on—the the separation between church and state. Uh, and so uh, it was uh, 
effective. And we could come up with spots that are equally, equally educational and effective for drugs. Yeah, I think that'd be a lot of fun. We should actually, we should actually come up with some of those and get them out there. Well, I'd like to, you know, point out that to, to this day, this is your brain on drugs, which is about the most, like, like, unrealistic ad and association with drug use of all time and kind of plays into the, that addictive personality thing. Like, all drugs remains, like, one of the top 15 broadcast spots of all time, you know, by, you know, according to that age, I think. Um, so, like, that's what people are probably still thinking about when they think about drug uh, and media uh, exposure to, to drug use. Drug use. Um, I, I would say that it's, it's helpful, I think, to present characters that that uh, use drugs like Sherlock Holmes, you know, when they when they do a series on 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 uh, a new series on Sherlock Holmes, I'm always I'm always attentive to whether or not they present the, the true Sherlock Holmes who injected cocaine. Um, I think in Pulp Fiction, John Travolta's character was a well a functional hitman, but uh, he was it was he was injecting heroin. Um, you know, and and back to roots of administration you brought up. I mean, I think we have the stigma around that where, you know, in realistically smoking something um, is more dangerous, I think, in long term than injecting something. And yet, you know, injection still is the, you know, the bad route uh, that, that, that nobody ever wants to go to, you know, and, and um, I think there's just so much work to do. And it was, you know, it's a really, it just seems like it'd be an uphill battle, but I, I like, I like where you're going with that. Yeah, it's uh, we we have an uphill battle, that's for sure. Um, but we have the talent, the energy, and the motivation uh, to do it. And I just hope people continue to push because, uh, as Martin Luther King said, no lie can last forever. And this, um, I, I think, uh, this is all going to come tumbling down the lies that is. And and so. Uh, I'm just happy to be like living at this time where I can actually help make a contribution. In your book, uh, you write about Dr. Nora Valco. I hope I'm saying her name right, um, who is still the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Uh, And you write, you call her a kingmaker and tyrannical because of the way that she wields power and influence over researchers. Uh, Tell us about what it's like being around some of the top brass around NIDA, uh, the culture of influence there that drives so much of the drug science in this country. Uh, in your book, you describe it as scientific indoctrination. Yeah, thank you for that question, because it, it was maddening. Um, uh, just think about, as scientists, how, how you see yourself. Um, uh, most of us see ourselves this way, in the way that uh, we think of ourselves that like this. We think that the data dictates our position. And now, when you're seeing overwhelming data, that supports a position or that uh, does that argues against the position that's being stated and you're a scientist and you know it's troubling and all of the scientists know it and when you see your colleagues be mute you wonder what's going on then it's not too hard to figure it out people want their grants people want those fruits that come along with carrying the, the party line. And so uh, me, uh, someone who comes from uh, a black community, one of these communities that uh, has been devastated by the war on drugs, not drugs, and then 
knowing that I'm playing a role in that devastation by not speaking up, by perpetuating this nonsense that's inconsistent with the data, it caused me all kinds of cognitive dissonance. It made me frustrated. Uh, not only with the other scientists, but especially with somebody like Nora, because um, uh, we both testified, for example, I think in 2015 at, at Congress, and we had a conversation about the carnage that was happening in the community. She's uh, born in Mexico because her family moved to Mexico, but... Um, and I was explaining how uh, Mexican-Americans are catching hell, uh, black Americans are catching hell because of these policies, and we are playing a role in, in propping them up. Um, and she nodded like, I got it, I get it, I get it. And then you see them, her and other people, continuing to disseminate this nonsense when they know better. And you know, I know they know better. Because I've talked to them. They know better. That's the most maddening thing ever. When they know people are suffering because of the nonsense that they are stating. But they don't change their rhetoric. To me, um, that borders on being criminal. So uh, talking about NIDA and, and, and Volkow and, and, and the research uh, kind of status quo, like you're a neuroscientist who is critical of, of neurobabble. And and I remember seeing, like growing up, hearing the, the myth that MDMA melted holes in your brain because they showed a image of a brain that looked like there were craters in it. And what helped sell that line was the brain scan, what was the image, the and, and fMRI in particular. Um, it seems to be coming under more scrutiny a little bit. There, there's some critical studies out there of fMRI techniques and methods. And your book talks about neuroimaging and, and NIDA and how neuroimaging and neurobiology have become these powerful and persuasive tools and mostly to argue things like addiction is a brain disease or we're going to show you pictures of your brain in various states of, inf of influence from drugs. And, and so like, tell us a little bit about how you're critical of neuroimaging and how the, the sort of neuroscientific consensus perpetuates some of those policies that, that you're talking about. Yeah. In the book, I, um, I use, uh, I, I really walk the reader through how to, Interpret, interpret neuroimaging findings. One of the things that researchers in this area has get grown fond of is that they put a couple brain images up on a slide. On the left, they'll say, this is the brain of a, someone who doesn't use drugs. And on the right, there is the brain of someone who is addicted to methamphetamine or some other drug. You pick the drug. You can see uh, on the left, and the person who doesn't use drugs, you can see more red. That means that more activation in this region compared to the person who uh, met criteria for methamphetamine addiction, uh, there's less activity in, in their brain. And so the audience are like led to believe that methamphetamine caused 
some neurotoxicity, some neural damage, um, such that you get less activity in the brain of the person who meets criteria for methamphetamine addiction. Now, the audience is not told, for example, um, that uh, we don't know what was there before the person used any drug. We don't know. Um, this is just one snapshot and one moment in time. So we don't know if there were some, if, if that, uh, if that's just the normal functioning of that person's brain or that's the result of a drug. We don't know because, uh, we didn't do the brain imaging before the person started using the drug. That's one problem. But the biggest problem is that you can see some minor difference in brain activity, brain structure size, whatever. Some minor difference. But you don't see any difference in performance, like a cognitive performance, uh, performance on a cognitive task. You don't see any difference. You don't see any differences. And then another important point is that the, dip, the brain differences that we see, if any, we don't know if those differences are in, within the normal range of human variability. Like your brain uh, won't be have the same amount of activity as mine on a particular task for a variety of reasons. Uh, and so that means that we have this wide range of normal human functioning, just like we have a wide range of normal human height. For example, if you are a male and you're 6'2", or you're a male and you're 5'10", uh, nobody's going to say that the 5'10 male is somehow height deficient because you're comparing them to a 6'2 male. It's just that the 5'10 remains in the normal range of human variability. That's the same thing that's true with, dr- with the brain, how it functions. Uh, and so um, these normal variabilities uh, and sort of uh, images or, or activity have been taken as some pathology in the brain. And so I'm helping the reader to see how to discern um, uh, between uh, like real concerns, real pathology, and most of, but, but what most often happens is that this is just functioning within a normal range. And so um, I, I hope they'll be able to ask uh, the right questions when they are presented with these uh, brain imaging findings. Um, uh, and uh, they'll see that uh, those brain imaging findings, at, at least to date, have not shown us anything remotely resembling neurotoxicity in human drug users. Thank you. That's really good context. Um, in your book, you say addiction is not a brain disease, uh, which I think we pretty much all agree with here at Narcotica. Uh, we're big fans of Maya Solovitz, um, who for me personally is the first author I encountered who really challenged this idea that addiction is a brain disease. Instead, she described it as a learning disability, sort of like ADHD or autism. I mean, if people have this perspective that it's a disease, whatever, at least it's not. they're not seeing it as a moral failing. Um, but I'll let you define this. If addiction isn't a brain disease, what is it? Yeah, uh, I uh, I just simply use the DSM criteria right now because it's a whole nother book 
to challenge those criteria. And I think they should be challenged, but I, I don't challenge it in this book. I just ex- accept their criteria. And those criteria are that uh, people have psychosocial disruptions as a result of their drug use. Uh, that's one sort of necessary component. And then another necessary component is that the person themselves are distressed by these disruptions. Let me give you an example. So like if uh, the disruptions might be that the person fails to meet obligations like at work uh, uh, or uh, with their family. Um, And so you can imagine, particularly with the sort of uh, political uh, divisions in the country, you can imagine if, 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 if. the person failed to go to Thanksgiving dinner with their folks um, and Christmas dinner with their folks because their folks are Trump supporters. Uh, but, you know, technically you can you can say uh, that uh, that person failed to meet an important family obligation uh, and then the person failed to go to work uh, because uh, their boss, for example, um uh, uh, has a lot of Trump memorabilia and that person is not a supporter of Trump and they just can't take it anymore and they decided that that's not what they want to do. Now, you can check it off and say that the person certainly meet enough symptoms to have this thing we call substance use disorder. That's what the DSM calls it. Um, uh, that, 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 it, that person meets some of those uh, criteria. But if the person is not distressed, by not meeting those criteria. So the person says, no, nah, I'd rather just stay at the crib and smoke a little weed or whatever. And I feel better about myself. Um, and, and someone say, well, your drug use, uh, prevented you from, from meeting those, uh, obligations. And the person said, yeah, but I'm not distressed by it. In fact, I feel pretty good about it. So now you can't say that that person meets criteria for addiction. But if the person is actually distressed about not meeting those obligations um, and these disruptions, then yeah, the person well, we can the person is, will be said to meet criteria for substance use disorder, and and that that's okay. I mean that's that's fine. Uh, my uh, quibble with some of the symptoms is that many of the symptoms have a lot to do with whether or not the drug is legal or not. So, so it's the legality of the substance. So one of the symptoms is that the person spends a great deal of time trying to procure the substance. You know, it's an illegal substance. You got a plan. You got to do all of these sorts of things. Again, if you just could go to the corner store and buy uh, some cocaine, uh, then you don't have to worry about that time effort. Uh, same as like with alcohol, you don't have to, that doesn't become an issue. Um, and, and so, um, uh, some of these things have a lot to do with the legality of the substance. And then there are all the other, other sort of symptoms like tolerance is a symptom. I think that's ridiculous to have that as a criteria or a symptom because tolerance is actually protective. Uh, we can think about people who may die from opioid overdoses. Folks who are tolerant are a lot less likely to die from an opioid overdose than those folks who are not tolerant. Uh, tolerance uh, has been shown to be neuroprotective in laboratory animals. So uh, it, uh, if, in animals that are tolerant, they show less uh, 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 neurotoxic effects at the neurotoxic doses of, drug, of a drug like methamphetamine. If you give a whoppingly large dose, 
uh, to a tolerant rat, you see uh, some neural protection because of tolerant. And so for the DSM to include tolerance, uh, I, I think that's a mistake. Um, people who take antidepressant medications or any medications on a regular basis, they are tolerant to many of some of the effects of those drugs, but we don't use that as a criteria to say that that person is addicted. Um, and so I have some qualms with some of the specific symptoms. Uh, one day I'll write something about it. But as it stands now, I understand we have to figure out a way to identify this thing that we call substance use disorder so we can help people who are actually distressed. I think that's a great point. Um, I've been giving a lot of thought lately just to the term addiction and I'm beginning to think that really addiction just doesn't exist. We just have like a continuum of use um, that may be problematic based on factors that have nothing to do with your use. And, and so like stigma, for instance, is a big one in determining how you feel about yourself, right? So, you know, if, if you know that everyone around you would look down on you based on this, this activity and, you know, uh, it could be um, a sexual fetish or, you know, certain things like that, it, it's very difficult to, uh, to be confident in coming out, so to speak. And, that, and that's been, you know, that, that kept gay men in the closet for years. And uh, I think that's a, that's a great point. Um, I, I think that dependency exists, obviously. Um, tolerance exists. But the idea that there is some sort of like tipping point where you where you fall from drug user into drug addict, it, it just I think that's that's a construct. Absolutely. So maybe maybe yeah. maybe we can write something on that one day. Yeah. I also think, you know, cravings are a real thing. Um, and I think a lot of people associate cravings with addiction and that's people crave lots of things. I crave sugar. I crave caffeine in the morning and you know, it's been almost eight years since I've done heroin, but sometimes I'm just like, you know, what'd be really nice right now? Some opioids. And that doesn't mean I'm addicted to them or I have an addictive personality or I'm in recovery. Uh, I, I really like challenging a way that we frame this stuff because language is very, very powerful. It, it it influences so much of our thinking and so much of our behavior. And we have to start there. We have to start with defining these terms. It seems like it's semantics. It seems like it's policing language to some people when you're like, don't use the word addict, use the word person who uses drugs or something or, or something more wordy. But it's in really important stuff. And like, if you don't, if we can't get the, the language right and the terminology right at the beginning, I don't really see how we can advance drug policy. Uh, to a to a different level, I absolutely agree with you. Language is everything in science. Um, you have to be precise with your language, and, and you're absolutely right about the craving thing. There was a battle uh, about whether to include craving. They've tried to include it for a number of years, and they got it into DSM five. Uh, but like craving, for example, the evidence shows, the overwhelming evidence shows that, um, this was a project that I was going to do. When you try to, uh, correlate craving with drug use, there's no correlation. It doesn't match. Um, like, uh, like you said, you know, it's like you crave things all the time and then you, you get past it. So it has nothing to do with drug use. That's what the evidence shows. But there is a powerful contingency of researchers who study craving and they uh, prevailed and they got craving in the DSM-5. 
it seems like so much of of the whole discourse and and the whole field of of drug use and substances are pathologizing really just everyday human being just like being human is to desire is to crave is to want to feel good is to want to be comfortable in your body is to want to connect with others and drugs are just playing a role in in normal everyday human behavior and it's part of our world it's part of being human like without an endogenous cannabinoid system or an endogenous opioid system these drugs wouldn't work on us but we have these systems we have receptors that receive the drugs in a particular way it it's like i don't believe in like creationism or like there's some grand design here but it's a pretty fucking cool world to live in where we can tinker with our default settings like this and insert a substance and alter our perception change our mood uh do so many things and 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 it is sad that yeah all this has become so pathologized and criminalized and and that's why when people say like the war on drugs is a war on us a war on people like i really get it like i really resonate with that cuz it's a war on just being human you you know you you hit it when you said um it's a pretty cool world you know you i mean we it's uh, humans is it's a pretty cool endeavor here what we're doing and um the founders uh, of the country you know they had their flaws and people can talk about that i agree but getting beyond their personal flaws just thinking about um the principles that they espoused particularly in the declaration of independence it's what you just said it's pretty cool humans we can have a good time here and that's what the declaration says the declaration says that we can live our life as we see fit and that and then like the next sentence it says government should be created only to secure those rights and when governments fail to secure those rights government should be disbanded i mean it's really clear uh, in our founding document exactly what you said so why are we trying to police people out of existence why are we trying to control everything people do especially when they're not bothering anyone what is that's the bottom line and you reminded me of this and how fun this really is how fun it's supposed to be i mean we're talking about these great substances and yet we're always made to be put on the defensive it's like as if you're doing something wrong when you are saying no i want to make sure people have a good time what's wrong with that yeah absolutely that's something i really like to emphasize in my reporting is that drugs feel good and we should celebrate that fact. And, you know, people like, I don't even want to say her name, but, you know, pr- prohibitionists, they, they, they just do not like this idea of what they call unnatural pleasure. And it's like, who are you to say what's natural and what is natural pleasure? And let's just like reimagine a society where people can enjoy themselves and like, be do it safely i I think that's a future that i want to fight for and so i'm really grateful for this book i think it's a really great primer on so many things on drug policy that are you know a lot of things that you you challenge they were incremental changes uh like harm reduction you know that was that was a step forward but we need to evolve we need to go further than that 
And I think this book is really good at bringing this. I, I recommend it to anybody that cares about drug policy. Pick up Drug Use for Grownups. Thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And um, so we're, we're almost at, at the hour here. and We don't want to you know, take up your whole day. We could talk for hours. We could, we could keep going and going and going. Zach, you know, it's cool, man. Um, <laughs> this, uh, you just uh, reminded me of why we do, we're doing this. You know, we're doing this to talk about joy and try to like help, help people experience more of it. Um, not harm people, but to um, uh, help people to live like they see fit. Uh, that's their right. Um, and that's why we're doing it, not be defensive. And I'm always, I feel like I'm always on the defensive because people ask me silly questions that I have to deal with. And so they make me behave, they make me answer questions as if I am a kindergarten teacher when I'm trying to teach at the college level. Um, I'm trying to talk about these high ideals. And that's what you guys are reminding me of. So thank you. We're the PhD level course in, in drugs over here. Um, so we've got a few fun questions for you, hopefully. So what is your favorite drug and what do you like most about it? Yeah, so that's a difficult question because it all depends on the circumstance, right? So there are times when, like, I'm with my wife and we need to reconnect and we need to, uh, I don't know, I need to be more forgiving, open or whatever. And in that sort of situation, MDMA would be great. Also, 6-APB uh, would be great in that situation. I, that, that Those are my favorite drugs in that situation. There are other times when... Uh, it's just been a long day and I want to decompress and I want to think about my behavior, uh, the impact of my behavior on other people. And I want to just, uh, grapple with those issues so I can be a better person. Heroin, nothing like heroin, a um, couple lines of heroin at the end of the day. Um, it's really good to do that. Um, uh, when there is something that need, I need to like really write, produce, a, uh, something, um, good. And I need to really go inside myself and be alert. Amphetamines are great for that sort of thing. Uh, there's a wide range of amphetamines that are good for that. So it all depends on what's the circumstance, where, um, uh, what's the setting. Uh, again, set, set, set and setting, set and setting. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any, um, maybe this is like too personal, maybe even, but like for partners, for adults who are together in a relationship, what kind of setting do you recommend for an MDMA experience for like two people in love to enjoy themselves and connect because that, that's that's like the history of mdma in this country psychoanalysts were using it to in couples therapy right yeah that's right you know um you know some people use these things called guides you know they're psychedelic guides or whatever i always find that creepy and weird um but if you have your partner uh, number one, uh, drug use uh, in our country, particularly the drugs we're talking about, has been rendered, uh, made more dangerous 
by simply making these things illegal. So people have to make sure they know what they have. It'd be nice if they had their substance tested and they, they're sure what they had. That's the first thing. You got to make sure that you have what you think you have. And if you are doing substances with your partner, the most important thing to do for anyone is to make sure that you do it in a comfortable setting, in a setting where you feel safe and protected. Um, because then that kind of anxiety is not coming in, not uh, infiltrating or uh, impinging upon the drug experience, uh, because that can negatively impact the drug experience. So a comfortable, safe setting, uh, where you have the amount of time set aside for this activity, just like you set aside time for going to a movie, going to a show, you need to set aside time for this activity. Um, that's the most important thing. Uh, this comfortable setting, make sure you have the, the drug that you think you have. Yeah. And we're, and we're in a pandemic. It's not like we're all going to raves, you know, people got to unwind somehow or learn how to use drugs in different ways, I think. And I, I always thought MDMA was interesting because I, I had always thought MDMA was about going to a rave and all the lights and like wiling out and staying up all night. And there's a whole, there's so many other ways to use drugs and set and setting really determine the experience, like you said. And in the east, on the West Coast and in, in San Francisco, in, in Oakland, like the hyphy movement, like these guys would take MDMA and like smoke blunts and like hang out and, just chill like they weren't like going to raves but like mdma was a huge part of their rap culture i have a question i just didn't um i'm glad you brought this issue up about mdma and the raves i remember this sort of thing and um uh i uh, uh i think you know like young people as young people get more experience uh, like i remember drinking alcohol as a young person and being out doing silly things but as you mature you realize that some of the things you you did in the past were not the best way to do those things. And I think, like, I hope that sort of MDMA going out and doing the rave thing, I hope people understand that that's one way to do it, but there are also some really uh, other w- good ways that you can, can do this. I, I Now I know, like, I can't be in public and do something like MDMA because it's just too overwhelming and people want to come up and talk to you and it's like i'm not trying to have a conversation i'm trying to be in here um and so um that's that so people have to be attentive to that it's like i i don't want other people to blow my high by asking me some question about uh dopamine and the nucleus accumbens when i'm trying to like rediscover what it means to be human yeah as a married person i cannot recommend mdma enough uh, it's for, for connecting with your partner. And I agree with Zach and, and you, Dr. Hart, uh, that, you know, doing MDMA indoors and just listening to some records or, you know, being comfortable is way better than doing it outdoors. Uh, nothing against that if that's what you want to do or at a party or whatever after the pandemic ends, like, go for it. But I, I definitely prefer it, uh, you know, at home. Um, I think this is a good place to wrap up, uh, you know, if there's anything else you want to mention, otherwise, uh, you know, people can find you on Twitter at Dr. Carl Hart, uh, and you can get your book. It's up, out from Penguin Press, correct? That is correct. Thank you. 
Well, thank you so much for being on it. It's been really great. Um, you know, I always learn so much from you and uh, I, I'm so happy that this book exists, that people can get out there and just like really dive into some of these thorny topics and, you know, really find out that they're actually not that controversial. I, I don't think so anyway. No, you're, you, you hit it on the head, man. This is, this is what has been so encouraging. Um, that most people, the writers, uh, reporters, they have delved into the arguments and they come away with what you just said. Um, but there's still uh, a few uh, uh, people who are just resistant to, to that notion. But you, you hit it on the head. It's not that controversial. If you're a rational, reasonable person who kind of like evidence, um, it's not controversial at all. <laughs> yeah, true. All right, then. Uh, I guess we'll say goodbye. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks so much. Always great talking to you. Thank you guys for what you do. And I got to tell you, it warms my heart to know that you're out there um, because I'm so looking forward to getting off of the scene. But I know the scene will be fine when you all are out here. So thank you. And if I could help in any way, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you. That really means a lot. Yeah, yeah. We will, you know, our generation, we're millennials. We like drugs too, just like everyone else. We're going to we're gonna keep doing it. Right on, bro. Take care, all right? All right. Bye. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. I'm your co-producer, Garrett Farah. If you like the show, you can support us by joining our Patreon. We are ad-free and would like to keep it that way. But if Patreon isn't for you, that's fine. You can still help us by spreading the word. We're on Twitter at Narcocast, Facebook, other stuff. And rate us wherever you get your podcasts, like Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, you name it. Our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music is by Revolution Void. And Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Take care, guys, and use responsibly. Have a nice night.